ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, the Bruce Lehrman defamation case has wrapped up. The credibility of witnesses is at the centre of closing arguments. Also, desperation for Australians trying to get their family members out of Gaza. Many aren't eligible for government help despite holding a visa. And should Aussie cricket champion Usman Khawaja be allowed to wear that black armband? Shoes were a different matter, but the armband made no sense to me. I followed all the regulations, the past precedents. I don't know that there's ever been a backlash around the world for a mark of respect for personal bereavement in any sporting context. Thanks for your company. Bruce Lehrman's barrister has told the federal court it can't rely at all on the evidence of Brittany Higgins as he made closing arguments in the defamation case brought by the former Liberal staffer. Mr Lehrman is suing Network 10 and journalist Lisa Wilkinson over an interview with Ms Higgins in which she detailed her rape allegation. His criminal trial collapsed due to juror misconduct, leaving no findings against him. Patrick Bell is following the case. So, Patrick, what have Mr Lehrman's lawyers said today about that program? Well, Mr Lehrman's lawyers have argued that Network 10, and in particular Lisa Wilkinson and producer Angus Llewellyn, were too wedded to Brittany Higgins as a source to be able to prepare a fair and reasonable report of her rape allegation. He's uh, used his closing submission to argue that uh, the program team failed to follow up some doubts that were raised about her claim by other sources and also uh, didn't uh, challenge Ms Higgins even when they harboured some private concerns about her claims. And this related to uh, Brittany Higgins' claim that perhaps uh, something untoward had happened with her phone, a claim that wasn't actually included in the final cut of this interview. But Matthew Richardson, uh, Mr Lehrman's barrister who's been handling the privilege part of this case, uh, has argued that that was evidence that Ms Higgins was not uh, as credible or reliable a source as Network 10 uh, had thought, and perhaps that should have prompted them to reconsider how they uh, treated her claims. There's been an intriguing distinction between Lisa Wilkinson and uh, Network 10 in how they've uh, defended this case. Lisa Wilkinson has argued that many of the responsibilities of fact-checking, following-up details were not her personal responsibilities. Matthew Richardson uh, said that was hard to reconcile with the fact that she gave a speech at the Logie Awards last year when the program won an award uh, for this interview. Uh, That's something that uh, uh, Lisa Wilkinson's barrister rejects and said she doesn't believe there were any mistakes and she's not trying to distance herself from that at all. Well, Network 10 is also arguing its reporting was true. So how has Mr Lehrman responded to that? Well, the case theory, as uh, uh, Mr Lehrman's other barrister, Stephen Wybrow, put it, is that Brittany Higgins made up her allegation to save her job and uh, that she knew uh, it was a potentially career-ending moment uh, to have been found passed out naked in a minister's office 
uh, in the early hours of the morning and that she uh, reasonably believed in the days following their entry to Parliament House that she would be sacked. Uh, now, that is something that Network 10 has argued against from the start of this trial and said if that were the case, she had no incentive to then uh, reignite re re the uh, police complaint and go public with this allegation. Uh, Mr Lemon's team have also, in the same way as uh, Network 10, sought to discredit him as a witness. They've sought to discredit uh, Ms Higgins' evidence generally and said that she cannot be relied upon because she has made a number of assertions of fact which were not true. Uh, and these were on a range of different topics, including uh, some of uh, the, the accounts she'd given to different people about seeing a doctor in the aftermath of the alleged rape and also uh, some of the inconsistencies about uh, what she did with the dress she was wearing on the night in question. Well, the trial has now wrapped up after several weeks. What have we learnt at this point? Well, the most telling observation is perhaps from Justice Michael Lee, who has said that there are significant credit issues with both Bruce Lehrman and Brittany Higgins, both of the key witnesses in this case. What that may mean is that as he uh, weighs up uh, whether uh, the truth has been made out or not and, and weighs up the case generally, the evidence of some of the other witnesses will become critical. Patrick Bell reporting there. Well, there could be some relief on the way for those suffering on the ground in Gaza. The United States ambassador to the UN has indicated Washington is ready to support a draft Security Council resolution that would call for more aid to enter the besieged coastal enclave. The vote is now set for Friday, New York time, and Linda Thomas-Greenfield says it will have America's support. We have worked hard and diligently over the course of the past week to come up with a resolution that uh, we can support. And we do have that resolution now. We're ready to vote on it. And uh, it's a resolution that will bring humanitarian assistance to those in need. It will support the priority that Egypt has in ensuring that we put uh, a mechanism on the ground that will support humanitarian assistance, and we're ready to vote for it. That's the United States ambassador to the UN there. Meanwhile, Australians with family members stuck in Gaza are desperately looking for some way to help their loved ones get out of the war-torn territory. PM has spoken with three people whose relatives have been granted Australian visas but aren't eligible for consular assistance to get across the border and out of the region. Sonia Feng has the story. Palestinian-Australian man Rami Alagar is in Cairo, where he's finally met up with his mother. She left Gaza two weeks ago, her exit facilitated by the US government. I don't believe I could, I could see her, to be frank. I mean, we reached a point that we might not see each other at all. It's amazing to be with my, with my mother. His sister arranged to get their mum out through US authorities after they got fed up waiting for help from the Australian government. Despite her having an approved visa for Australia and registering for consular assistance through the Department of Foreign Affairs, their mum was not eligible for assistance. He'll be flying her to Australia within the next fortnight. That inability to get consular assistance is something Mahmoud Sabawi in Melbourne understands. His mother is still in Gaza, despite having an Australian visa. He's frantically worried about her safety. 
my mum uh, is 75 years old. She needs she needs some cares, and it's not it's not safe, and she's very hard to move. Uh, it's it's not like you know she's uh, she just carry her stuff and go because my mum my mum most of the time she's in a, in a wheelchair. But Mahmoud Sabawi has received an email from DFAT telling him that his mother is not eligible for help to get out. He hasn't told his mum she's not eligible anymore. He wants to keep her hopes alive. A bit depressing and I, I don't know. I, until now, I didn't tell her. I'm still, she's still in the hope. So maybe this is the last hope she's having before anything happened to them. PM has seen the emails sent by the Department of Foreign Affairs to Mr Sabawi and Mr Alagar and other Australians trying to get their relatives out. In those emails, DFAT points out that meeting the requirements for a visa to come to Australia does not make a person entitled to receive consular assistance. It says only immediate family of Australian citizens and permanent residents are eligible. But immediate family is defined as either a spouse or a child. Mr Sabawi argues the the government recently tightened the definition of family and he's frustrated because he was originally encouraged by DFAT to apply for the assistance. So far, more than 800 Palestinians have been granted temporary visas for Australia since the Israel-Gaza war broke out 10 weeks ago. However, the ABC has learned the majority of these visa holders are still struggling to get out of Gaza through the rougher crossing on the border with Egypt. In Perth, another man who will call Eamon managed to get his mum to Australia in the early days of the war. But many of his families are still stuck there, despite having approved Australian visas. The fact that we're really grateful for the support because my mum was so happy. They they left and then at the border, they were greatly assisted by the fact in terms of paper, in terms of providing them with food, uh, medical attention if they required. Um, but now uh, it's water. different. Now it's different. Now the, no one is approved. Like we don't, we don't get any any support. We thought the process is easy, and okay, and this is what it's going to happen for the rest of the family who were um, approved their visas and stuff like that. But not anymore. So it's absolutely great to have them safe with us here in Australia. However, torturous from the other way because we're you know dealing with split families now. PM asked the Department of Foreign Affairs about the situation. DFAT provided a written statement saying the Australian government is doing all it can to support Australians and their immediate family members in Gaza who want to get out. The Australian government has so far supported a total of 152 Australian citizens, permanent residents and their family members to depart Gaza. Exiting Gaza is difficult and unpredictable. The ability of the Australian government to help is extremely limited. DFAT says it cannot comment on individual family circumstances, but it reiterates that this type of assistance is for Australian citizens, permanent residents and their immediate family members. And having a visa to come to Australia does not make someone eligible for consular assistance in a crisis. Sonia Feng reporting there. Australian cricketer Usman Khawaja has defended his decision to wear a black armband during the first test against Pakistan. The sport's global governing body has reprimanded him for the act, but he claims it was for personal bereavement and has nothing to do with the war in Gaza. Isabel Masali reports. Last week it was writing on shoes that caused controversy. Today, it's a black armband. But the fact it's caused controversy at all has confused many including the man at the centre of it, opening batter Usman Khawaja. The ICC asked me on day two what it was for. I told it was for a personal bereavement. I never, ever stated it was for anything else. The shoes were a different matter. I'm happy to say that. But the armband made no sense to me. Um, 
I followed all the regulations, the past precedents. Um, guys have put stickers on their bats, names on their shoes, um, done all sorts of things in the past without ICC approval and never been reprimanded. At the first test in Perth last week, he wore a black armband after being ordered not to show messages of freedom is a human right and all lives are equal on his shoes. They were written in the colours of the Palestinian flag. The International Cricket Council has now reprimanded him for the black armband, with a spokesperson saying he didn't seek prior approval from Cricket Australia and the ICC, as required in the regulations. It carries no financial or playing penalty, but Kawaja says he'll be contesting it because he doesn't believe the rules are being applied consistently. And now he's got a high-profile supporter. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese weighed in today. I think that Usman Kawaja uh, is a, a great Australian cricketer and that uh, the position uh, that uh, he put forward is one that I think is pretty uncontroversial. Uh, one that uh, all lives are equal is a sentiment uh, that I think is uh, uncontroversial. And uh, I think that uh, he's someone uh, who is, uh, plays a really important role for uh, Australian cricket. Uh, Usman Khawaja made his position clear, which is he didn't see it as a political statement. Dr Catherine Ordway is the Sport Integrity Research Lead at the University of Canberra. She believes the ICC response is extremely problematic. I don't know that there's ever been a backlash around the world for a mark of respect for personal bereavement in any sporting context. We've seen many examples where people have worn black armbands, where there's been a death of a senior member of a club or an organisation as a mark of respect. And so the fact that... Usman Khawaja in this case has indicated that he was wearing a black armband for personal bereavement reasons is entirely consistent with decades of similar marks of respect around the world. Dr Ordway says it appears the ICC believes the armband was a political statement. If this is what the International Cricket Council is interpreting this relate to, that there is an expression against war and to support peace for all people, then I'm not sure what stance the International Cricket Council believes it's, it's taking. And it's particularly concerning given the International Cricket Council has recently been included on the Olympic program and the International Olympic Committee makes it very clear about its stance on peace. She says it's not clear if pressure from Australian politicians will make a difference, but... I would like to think that Cricket Australia is powerful enough in having one seat at the table to influence the other member federations sitting around the decision-making table at the International Cricket Council. And, of course, the current chair is a New Zealander, so you would also like to think that that would shift the dial. Murdoch University's Dr Greg Martin has examined protest culture, including in sport. He argues part of the problem is that the ICC regulations are broad and at times open to interpretation. One of the things that Kawash has actually drawn attention to is the fact that players across the world, actually, and across codes were able to express opinion, symbolic opinion, you know, by taking the knee uh, before matches in support of Black Lives Matter. From my perspective, it looks like there is a pot potentially a grey area because one of the things that the regulations do is prohibit 
activity that is political, religious or racial in nature. Kawaja says he won't be wearing a black armband when he takes the field for the second test on Boxing Day. Isabel Masali reporting. You're listening to PM with me, David Lipson. Don't forget, you can hear all of our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. All over the country, state and territory governments are searching for ways to relieve pressure on overstretched emergency departments. In Victoria, the government there has put a lot of faith in so-called priority primary care centres, which offer an an alternative to hospital emergency for patients with urgent but not life-threatening needs. Several dozen have been rolled out so far. So how effective are they in easing the pressure on the system? Kimberly Price has been taking a look. The Victorian government's rollout of GP-led priority primary care centres, otherwise known as PPCCs, was designed to give patients across the state with non-urgent medical needs a place to go instead of an emergency department. Cuts, fractures, burns and respiratory conditions are examples of the problems they're meant to pull away from hospitals. And for some patients who called in on ABC local radio in Melbourne, they've made a real difference. I've used it twice in the last six weeks and my experience has been excellent. Well, I would have gone to an emergency department, waited for a long time and then triaged. I thought I was actually having a heart attack and a couple of mates took me to this unit in um, in Cows and, and it was was really good. I was very impressed with the experience. The nurses were lovely. I was triaged very quickly and it was just, just like a, a little miniature, um, you know, ED. But other Victorians have their criticisms. You can only find information about these primary care centres if you actually know what they're called. People don't know they're there. They haven't been advertised. We've got one quite close to us, which I know about. It's on a main road behind huge trees. And there's a bit of a flappy sign out the front that looks as if it's a cafe. In the Victorian regional city of Ballarat, the head of medical and allied health at USF Pharmacy, Kerry Gordon, which runs the region's PPCC, says the model is working. I suppose what works with the model, Kimberley, is the ability for people to access services for a period of time. So PPCC is open from 10am to 10pm every day of the year, including public holidays. So it helps to relieve emergency departments of non sort of non urgent medical care and alleviates the demand on that system in a public health service. But she agrees more awareness is needed. We haven't got huge awareness of the PPCCs being available, so people will still present to ED and they're not sure of the criteria. The Ballarat PPCC has seen over 10,000 patients in its 12 months of operation. Ms Gordon believes priority primary care centres could make a difference across Australia. So I think if you're wanting to give good health care and immediate health care and health care in your own community, the expansion of urgent care centres or PPCCs is really important to help alleviate that pressure on the emergency department, which is occurring, you know, 24 hours a day. Ken Griffin is the CEO of Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association. He believes different states need their own models for success. I would object to anyone saying their model is better. Every model is meant to be meeting a local need. And in that respect, we have different models right across the country. In some states, like Victoria, the centres are run by GPs or have a multidisciplinary approach. But in other states, like the ACT, they're nurse-led clinics. Mr Griffin says it's too early to tell how effective PPCCs will be in alleviating the pressure on emergency departments. 
if you have a sick child or a sick member of the family or you're just worried about your own health, you're going to go to whoever can service you first. The reason we don't know whether these are effective um, uh, is because we haven't seen them operating for long enough to really see if the impact of them is sustainable for the health system. But ultimately, Mr Griffin says the issues within the healthcare system won't be wholly solved by PPCCs. Without a doubt, we need to make sure that if you're in an area with a PPCC, that you know it's there and you know when it's open and you know when you should use it appropriately. Ultimately, we wouldn't want to have these in the system if um, our general practitioners and our um, and our hospital emergency departments were able to cope with the demand. That's Ken Griffin from the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association rounding out that report by Kimberly Price. Well, the festive season is upon us. You can feel it all around. And while many are in high spirits, there's no denying how tough Christmas can be on our hip pockets. Frontline services are experiencing an overwhelming demand as people struggle to afford the basics, let alone Christmas gifts. But many charities are working hard to help people make ends meet in different ways. Fatima Alumi spoke to some of them. It's mid-morning and the Oz Harvest Market in Sydney is bustling. Hi, how are you? Would you like some bread today? Sydney resident Grant has been struggling to afford his weekly groceries, so he's stocking up on all his essentials. The cost of food and especially fresh food is very tough these days to meet those things and often the cheaper packaged food seems to be cheaper up front but in the long run it's not, so that's why these organisations are great. Oz Harvest is the charity that runs the market five days a week all year round for people who are experiencing financial hardship. All the produce is rescued, meaning it was saved from being sent to the landfill, and it's free for those who need it. The market is especially busy this time of year, during the holiday season. You want it to be a nice festive season as much as you can, but you know that at sometimes that comes at a bit of a, a cost. Grant works multiple part-time jobs and is always looking for more work, but he struggles to pay for necessities like food. People have got to really make the choice between whether they pay their rent or their medications and stuff like that, and that's why an organisation like Oz Harvest is great, that they, they help supplement people getting the food that they can get, so they do a good job. He's not the only one finding it tough. Hundreds of people pour through the market doors daily, Susanna Dropper is the Oz Harvest market manager. Today we are offering two additional vegetable choices. We have here cauliflower, capsicum, tomatoes, zucchinis and so on. Susanna Dropper says the market is an essential service for the rising number of people who wouldn't be able to afford to eat three meals a day otherwise. On a usual day, it can be up to 450 customers. And it's a really lot of people that seek the food relief, especially in, the, in this time leading up to Christmas. We've seen an increase. A recent report from Food Bank shows 60% of all food insecure households have at least one person working full-time living in them. Susanna Dropper says the kinds of people needing their help come from all walks of life. Last week I had three beautiful ladies and they were saying, well, this will save us a little bit so that we can then buy gifts for our grandchildren. You know, so people are making choices. Another gentleman came, he was saying, look, my daughter is struggling, she's moving in with me, but my pension is enough only to cater for me and my food. 
For many, the holiday season is the most expensive time of year and other charities are also recording a spike in the number of people needing help. Yolanda Says is the CEO of the St Vincent de Paul Society. Vinnie's does experience an increase in demand at Christmas. Um, We've seen about an 18% increase in demand for our services from the beginning of this financial year. And already we know that people that have never turned to charity before are coming to see us for the first time. And she says being stretched for cash at this time of year can be really hard. They would be looking to buy some gifts for their children, but the reality is that they're really struggling to make ends meet. They're struggling to pay their bills. All of those things that we take for granted at Christmas really benefits or extras that they just can't afford. So that's the reality of the Christmas that many Australians will be facing. Zuzana Dropper from Oz Harvest says the volunteers have become a sort of family for those seeking their help. This place is not only giving the food, it's also providing connection. And having a place, a safe place, a dignified place, is as well a place that they want to connect with in this busy Christmas time because that fulfills as well that other role of having the community. That's Zuzana Dropper ending that report from Fatima Alumi. Australia's biggest Indigenous legal service in the Northern Territory has today declared it is back on a path to being able to provide strong representation for vulnerable clients. The North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency has been rocked by an unfair dismissal federal court case taken by its former chief executive and an exodus of its lawyers. Jane Barden reports. Six weeks ago, the North Australian Aboriginal Justice Agency, NAJA, announced it wouldn't be able to take any more clients in Alice Springs until the end of 2023. Of 17 criminal lawyers in the town, only three remained after an exodus of resignations. NAJA's acting chief executive, Daryl Pearce, says it's now on a recruitment drive and using locum interstate lawyers, but it's going to have to extend the new case ban. We would look to be in a position by the end of January to ensure that we have the ability to open up our caseloads again for lawyers. But we do recognise that we can't stress lawyers with having overworked them and loading up cases on people. He says the consequences for some of Australia's most vulnerable clients in the Australian jurisdiction with the highest incarceration rates are dire. There are a lot of people that are not represented properly in court and self-representation is something that um, people are unfortunately being dragged to or having to go to private lawyers. But the other side of things, there are a lot of people that are not represented who are being charged and potentially jailed, but in the main they're being remanded on bail. So what we'll see is a massive increase of people on remand inside Alice Springs Watch House, Darwin Watch House, all the watch houses. Naja has suffered internal turmoil after its board stood down its then-CEO Priscilla Atkins last year and then sacked her. During an unfair dismissal case by Ms Atkins heard in the federal court in October, the Naja board alleged she'd forged the signature of the chair, Colleen Roses, to extend a $350,000 salary contract by five years. Ms Atkins told the court she saw Ms Roses sign the contract in June 2020. Ms Atkins made counter-allegations in court that Nadja's chief financial officer, Madhur Evans, had made secret unauthorised payments to the chair, Ms Roses. Ms Roses and Madhur Evans said no unauthorised payments were made. The court case will conclude next year. Separate to the federal court action, the NT police investigated allegations of unauthorised payments. Daryl Pierce again. No wrongdoing was found. 
The other thing people also need to remember is that we've also been investigated by uh, the NTICAC, as well as the fact we have a clean order. So we have three really clear investigations have gone indicating that there's no wrongdoing in the organisation. Priscilla Atkins has not yet responded to the ABC's request for her comment. Daryl Pearce says Nadja can now move on and focus on strengthening its systems. The other thing that will have to happen is the development of really robust government structures to ensure that not only are we transparent, but we are accountable. Last month, the anti-attorney-general wrote to the federal government which funds NACHA, asking it to consider diverting some of the money to the Anti-Legal Aid Commission to take on some of its cases. NACHA says that didn't happen, but the federal government has appointed a grant controller to monitor the organisation's spending. NT Chief Minister Eva Lawler says she wants NACHA's issues resolved. The issues that we've seen with the, the board and the CEO of NAJA, those issues need to be sorted out. Veteran Darwin barrister John Lawrence SC, who served as a NAJA senior lawyer years ago, thinks bigger changes than NAJA has announced are needed. I've seen enough to sadly convince me that this organisation has got to such a state of disrepair that it needs to be changed in a transformational way completely. Not just Daryl Pierce is rejecting criticism of the organisation. We're dealing with anywhere between 80 and 90% of the cases or the clients or the people that are in court. So we really do need a lot of people to uh, support us rather than see us as being a problem, but really focus on what the future looks like. How do we deal with people entering the justice system? How do we change some of the behaviours around people entering into the justice system as well? That's Daryl Pierce from Naja speaking to Jane Barden. And that's PM for this week. PM's producer is Michael Edwards. Today's show was produced by David Sparks. Technical production by Lena Elsadi, Joram Toth and Anna John. I'm David Lipson. The PM team is on break for a fortnight. AM, though, will be back on Tuesday. Thank you for your company this year. Good night and Merry Christmas.